Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to episode 107 of the Fabulously Keto podcast. And not only is it 107, it's our second year anniversary. Happy anniversary, Jackie. (laughs) And should I be giving you what's after paper? What do I am I meant to give you for a second? Anyway. (laughs) Anyway, you're too far away. (laughs) Oh, it doesn't mean that your language of love, you can give me something in the post. I'll send you a kiss. Oh, thank you. I can feel it from here. (laughs) So today we have a very special guest who's joining us for our second anniversary, who is Nina Teicholz of The Big Fat Surprise. And you've met Nina before, haven't you? Yes, I met Nina for the first time. That was when I went to Breckenridge um, to the low carb um, Breckenridge conference and that was really great so um sort of cornered her in the lobby and you know I was sort of we were talking about policy health policy and that sort of stuff so um she probably you know looked at me strangely as as people do um who is this rabid you know um passionate Australian you know and what is she talking about so yeah, it was it was obviously a little bit of a fangirl moment. I should have brought my copy of the Big Fat Surprise, and um, yeah, because obviously, if anyone gets a chance to go to the well, the Breckenridge or the Denver, the low carb Denver conferences, you know, they have some really great um, great speakers. So Jason Fung and Gary Fetke was there. David Unwin, Jen and David Unwin. So um, yeah, they managed to to get some some great speakers. So and Nina was was there that year. So really great. Yeah, and I had the opportunity to to meet with her again a couple of times actually. So um, going back to back to the US for various um, conferences and Keto Fest. Then I think she came to Australia, so she was at Low Carb Down Under as well. So that was really special because Zoe Hardcombe was there and um, Karen Zinn. So they had the the three of, um, you know, Tim Noakes' angels were were there at the conference. So it was really great to to see them in action. Mm, yeah. And I met her this year in May at the PHE conference, but she was always very busy talking to other people even though we'd spoken by email before she came and and she said yes let's let's catch up we just didn't get a chance to catch up it was very hectic Mm. yeah it's really special that we have have nina i suppose for many people her big fat surprise was you know one of those 
books that, you know, were quite instrumental in people's journeys, you know, whether it was the fasting method or keto clarity, people always talk about, you know, the big fat surprise as really, you know, setting setting the the tone of their their health journey. Yeah. And we hear a lot of our guests mention it, you know, that was one of their books as well. Mm. So tell us a bit about Nina. Nina is a science journalist and author of, as we said, the New York Times bestseller, The Big Fat Surprise, which really, as we said, upended the conventional wisdom on dietary fat, especially saturated fat, and spurned a new conversation about whether these fats in fact cause heart disease. Nina is also founder of the Nutrition Coalition, a not-for-profit working to ensure that nutrition policies are transparent, evidence-based, and work for which she has been asked to testify before the US Department of Agriculture and the Canadian Senate. Nina is a graduate of Stanford and also in the UK, Oxford University and previously served as an Associate Director of the Centre of Globalisation and Sustainable Development at Columbia University. Nina lives in New York City with her husband and two sons. So let's hear from Nina on our special anniversary episode. Welcome, Nina, to the Fabulously Keto podcast. It's fabulous to have you with us today. Thank you, Jackie. It's great to be here. And hello, Louise. Hi, Nina. (laughs) And... For, this is our second anniversary, so we've kept you as our special guest for our second anniversary. Thank you. I'm very honoured. <laughs> and um, we always ask, where in the world are you? Uh, right now, I'm in the northwest corner of Connecticut, where uh, we have a little weekend place. So I'm trying to stay somewhat cool and out of the summer heat in New York City, which is where I normally live. Ah. And so is it, is it cooler there? Not really, <laughs> it's, but it's probably uh, maybe it's it's better weather than it is in Melbourne, Australia. I'm not sure. It has to be. And I've seen on the news that um, you know, there's been wildfires. There's been obviously the heat from from Europe, the UK, Europe sort of rolled across the US. So you've had an exceptionally uh, warm summer, but your houses aren't really built like they are here with the ducted um, air conditioning. So, yeah. Well, we do have air conditioning. The U.S. It's I think it's Europe that mainly is maybe lacking in air conditioning conditioning more than the U.S. It's very steamy and humid here. Uh, we just we just get weather that feels like you're walking through soup when you go outside. So um, yeah, it's not the best, but <laughs> we just stay inside. Yeah, good. So why don't we? start by hearing about your journey and how you came to low carb and how you immersed yourself in this world? Well, I came to this um, maybe differently uh, from uh, some of your other guests in that I am a journalist and I, uh, I really didn't know anything about nutrition and didn't have much of an interest in it, even though in retrospect, I wonder why I didn't, <laughs> because I always uh, struggled a bit with my weight and um, well, more so as a, as a young woman, really. And, uh, and I didn't have any idea how to lose weight or I would try my best, um, but, but not really be successful. And also I was a vegetarian 
um, because I thought that was the healthiest way to eat. But I really was not focused much on food until basically two things happened. One was that I was assigned an article on trans fats for a U.S. magazine. Mm -hmm. And that really sent me into this fascinating world that I didn't know existed, which was, you know, dietary fat in general, which are, you know, vegetable oils and what were those and saturated fats and what were those and why were scientists hanging the phone up on me if I asked them about the problems with the evidence I seem to found, have found with the low fat diet or I was or the stories from the vegetable oil scientists who some of the early researchers on trans fats and who they were telling me about being heckled at meetings. And then I found the scientists who had been hired by vegetable oil companies to do the heckling at, you know, at scientific conferences and meetings. And I realized that this whole field was completely fascinating and, and far more than just about the science was sort of these dynamics of scientists bullying other scientists and the, the involvement of the food industry. So it was, um, it was sort of, it, it, really excited me as an area to research and study. And I became interested in in just the whole area of research. And then simultaneously, I was also writing this little restaurant review column in New York that was, um, I had just for a, a kind of one of these throwaway neighborhood papers, but it was fun to do. But then, but also the newspaper had no money to pay me. So I was relying on restaurants just to give me free meals wherever I went. And it turns out that what the restaurant chefs wanted to serve, now this is 20 years ago, but they wanted to serve red meat and creamy sauces and, um, you know, even organ meats so things that I had really never tasted or ever seen before. And I had, remember, I wasn't eating red meat because I had been a vegetarian for a very long time. But I, you know, I sort of soldiered on and feeling like this is my job. And I found myself inexplicably losing weight, like effortlessly. And it was a mystery to me. You know, I went to the doctor. He said, wow, your, heart, your, your lipid markers look just fine. And I just couldn't understand that mystery of how I could eat all these foods and be healthy, if not healthier, than I had felt before. So those sort of both those things happened in tandem, I would say, like in the early 2000s. And yeah, and then that, that that's been, you know, it's been my history since then, I haven't been able to leave this field because it's so extremely interesting to me. Yeah. And now you're one of our famous people. Well, thank you. Well, <laughs> the keto, you're, you're in the keto sphere in the, um, yeah. Yeah, certainly in the, in the, you've been elevated and really, you know, those two worlds colliding. Well, first of all, I want to know, did you publish that article or, you know, as a result of that article that then led to the big fat sur- surprise. So all that research. So did you, yes, did you I meet did. that deadline? Well, I did. I did a, I did. I, I wrote an article on trans fats that was uh, for gourmet magazine. It was, it was in maybe 2003 and it was, for the magazine, they had never had so much interest in an article in like their recent history. It was just, it just lit up um, in terms of interest. And then I got a contract to write a book on trans fats. I actually started to write a book on trans fats. And about several years in, I realized I can't do a book on trans fats, or maybe maybe it wasn't several, it was probably a year in. I realized I needed to do a book on dietary fat in general. 
Mm-hmm. And for a while, my book was on dietary fats in general. In fact, I have a whole chapter about omega threes and fish oils that I, you know, I wrote and then I took out of the book. But eventually, my book came to be about really to focus on the question of saturated fats and the idea that we should replace them with vegetable oils. So that's really the heart of the book um, and how we came to focus it. It's certainly, the the book was, you know, it's, a, it's certainly if the if the listener doesn't know about the Big Fat Surprise, we'll put that in the show notes. And if not, why not? Because obviously it's one of the books that, you know, certainly has, you know, its impact factor, you know, yeah. along with obviously other, other contributors to the, you know, the literacy to become literate and to become critical. But it's not just about the answer whether we do or don't eat fat. It's everything that you unpacked around, you know, why the dietary advice changed. I think that sort of awareness of how it changed from one thing to another and then this perpetuation of the agendas behind it, I think that's been, you know, fascinating alarming, distressing, concerning for, you know, not just for low carbers, but the population in general. It's true. I think that there are some people who go on a low carb or ketogenic diet and they are just fine making that transition and they don't ask too many questions and they see the results on their body and they're fine. They're, that's all they need to know. They've got the results that they they have desired. And then there are other people, uh, and I include myself in this, which are people who are really need to know the whole story. Like they, they really need to understand how we got to where we are, how we could have lived so long with this giant mass of misinformation that seems just like secondhand knowledge to us, like our most deeply felt beliefs. Like, oh my God, of course I can't drink whole milk. Are you crazy? I mean, all of those very deeply held beliefs that like, where did they come from? And why did we, you know, how did they become so settled? And, and how can it be true? You know, how can it be that they're wrong or that they're, you know, they're mostly wrong and, and because there are so many checks in place in science, like how is it that nobody stood up and stopped this like massive flood of misinformation along the way? And so I think trying to under, trying to understand that story is um, I think important for a lot of people who, who want to sort of, who want to understand the backstory on how we came to where we are. And so I think my book does that for people. I mean, it also tells it in a story form. So it was called by the economist as a nutrition thriller, <laughs> which is funny because it's a book on nutrition, but it's the, you know, the history is kind of thrilling. Like the, you know, the story of Ansel Keys and the people who went up against him and tried to challenge him and the bullying that sure. went on in nutrition science. It's, it's kind of, it is sort of amazing what, what has happened. So um, and I say I count myself among in that group of people because I did not, I mean, it was only after years of researching that I sort of looked at the evidence and said, you know, I really need to change the way that I eat. <laughs> but I, I had to be convinced by the evidence first. Um, and that took, a, that took me a while. Yeah. 
We were talking just off air about pop psychology and you're speaking to Gretchen Rubin's questioner. You know, you're a questioner, so you need to, um, you know, it's just one of the, the typologies of how people respond to um, external cues. And it's just like when you were speaking and it's just, you know, thank goodness. And that's your job. You're, that's why you're a journalist because, you you know, you have to know why. But it's it really speaks to those influences and those drivers, as you said, about the nutrition policy and you know, instrumentally in that was obviously the role of Ansel Keys in transforming that. And certainly when you laid out the historical things, you know, the, the the timeline for that. When you were doing the research, were you going, you know, like the brain emoji, the blow the brain blowing emoji? Yeah, you know, were, were you just like dumbfounded how, you know, certainly the systems or the processes, not just the personality who drove that. I mean, obviously, it was a key, key individual. But what was your reaction? Did you, you know, when you were unpacking all this? Well, I, I think it was, um, it really was a, a process, and I, I think that it's, uh, it's not easy to be a questioner, as you put it, somebody who is challenging the quite conventional wisdom all around them, right, all the time. Like that is not a comfortable place to be. I think we're all familiar with why that is that creates a lot of cognitive dissonance with your immediate world. But I, it was it was difficult, even though, I mean, I, I wasn't exactly the first person to have written about some of this. There was Gary Taubes before me, and there were other people I discovered. There's um, a Swedish man named Ufi Ravenskoff who has done superb work, but, but you know, he's... He was, um, I mean, I went to a conference where he was speaking and he was sort of practically yelled out of the room uh, by the nutrition scientist there. And then there was a former editor of the Journal of the American Medical Association who wrote this huge book, um, basically going through all the studies of the diet heart hypothesis. That's those hypothesis that saturated fats and cholesterol cause heart disease. So there had been people before me, but it still was very nerve wracking. Um, and I would just, I would often just like lay down on the floor next to my husband where he was working and say, like, how can I be right? Like, how is it possible that I can be right? There must be something wrong with what I'm saying. I, there must be, it's impossible that I mean, remember that my book was really the first one to put together all the arguments and really focus on saturated fats. So it was really the first time that something like that had appeared. And I, it was, and it was even more dangerous than I knew because when you're researching really, as you, I'm sure, you know, like when you're, uh, uh, as a professor, like when you're researching something really deeply and you're in your research hole and you're, you know, you've got stacks of papers on both sides of you and you're just not, you're not keyed into what's really going on in the, out there in the real world very much. And so I didn't even realize like how, uh, how anti-meat the world had become. I didn't, I didn't realize, you know, what was in store for me when I came out with it. But I, I have to say, like, it, it made me check and double check and triple check my work just endlessly because it was it was um, I just thought again and again, like, how is it possible I could be right? And, and all these experts, authorities could could not could be wrong. And that um, it took me a long time to it took me actually, you know, until after the book was published, when my arguments were really te uh, tested up against the journalists and the scientists and my critics. And, and I realized what, wow, there's just people are going after me and making ad hominem attacks and, and they're 
you know, a few details they were niggling about, but on the whole, there really wasn't any substantive arguments against the kind of the thesis that I put out there. Mm. But we've seen that also with um, obviously very high profile cases, which you were part of the defence for Professor Tim Noakes, okay. um, Australian colleague, Dr. Gary Fetke, but just even, you know, your your colleague, you know, Dr. Zoe Hardcomb, people that are esteemed in certainly the academic community. But as you said, this the way that people construct their argument, misinformation, to serve a purpose, you know, they build empires, they have corporate interests, which lead to that whole declaration of the conflict of interest. You were you were poking the bear, girlfriend. So um, yeah, those those house of cards come crumbling down. Well, in fact, it didn't come crumbling down, but it it I mean it has shifted scientific opinion. And it has allowed a community of people now, a fast growing community of people out there, which, you know, which you and your audience are, are a part, which are people who are, who, who are willing to try something different um, and with their diet and nutrition. And I think that what my book does, my work and Zoe Harcomb's work is the same, is give people the comfort that they are not endangering their health and that there is um, good science behind their choices. And it often gives them arguments, you know, when, you know, the, uh, the umpteenth article is sent to them by like their uncle Andrew, and it says, you know, you're killing yourself with like, <laughs> that. I mean, hopefully this provides them with a couple of arguments to as retorts, you know, to say like, no, actually what I'm doing is, is based in history and science and, and um and it's safe and healthy yeah and i think that's very reassuring because when even i think about back to when i started this even though i love fat and fatty foods and i never gave up drinking well i never drank milk but putting whole milk in my tea i always ate the fatty parts of the lamb i always ate the skin on the chicken i always ate the chicken legs rather than the breast i never stopped doing that but in my head was this it's not good for you. It's not good for you. It's not good for you. So having that reassurance that yes, it's okay. And chances are it is quite good for you was just a relief. And, and so you let go of some of that angst that you create within yourself when you're thinking you're doing yourself damage and harm. Right. I remember talking to uh, the head of a, an, a sort of an Italian aristocrat who invited me to speak to uh, an audience outside of Venice, and he, he, he had, his family has been involved in the dairy and particularly the butter business for 500 years. And he said about 60 years ago, a depression fell over our entire family because we thought we were hurting people. We thought we were killing people. And, and so it's, it is, you know, imagine you're not just eating this, you're producing it for other people's consumption. So uh, yes, I think it gives people the sense of relief and 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 a kind of at least a quiet confidence that they know that what they're doing is not harmful. Mm. And I think it's you know the chapter particularly on women, you know, women's health and the you know the impactfulness. That particular one chapter obviously you know resonates with me particularly as I I move through to my golden time now, and I still <laughs> you know. <laughs> You know, and I think about my mother, you know, who really, 
the influence of those mothers in the who grew up in the 60s and they were calorie restricting to get into the you know the beautiful slim sort of dresses and when I was a teenager about obviously the messaging about calorie restriction and I look at her um osteoporosis so very brittle bones because probably of all those calorie deprivations but now I you know the the comfort that I have that I need fat as I move through this hormonal challenging time you know that's that's the comfort and I think you know you 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 should be really proud of the impact that you've done you know across the lifespans of people um, and particularly as Jackie said you know the the work has driven um, the movement you know it reassures the movement collectively and individually that we you know it's just it makes sense you know why why these corporate interests have gotten a hold of our food production and our food systems, our food policy. It's just, yeah, yeah. so many emotions that come with that. I was going to say also we, we've we got these guidelines now. We never had them before and then they brought them in and now everybody's sick, so much sicker than they ever were before. You'd think somebody would wake up and say, hmm, maybe they're not right. <laughs> I think all of, you know, a lot of this has to be understood in the context of the food, and I would include the pharmaceutical industries and also agricultural interests that they have paid hundreds of billions of dollars to own this space, right? So they have paid, they, the guidelines are sort of their vehicle for ensuring their products are sold and consumed. And they are, um, and they and they truly own this space. So, for those of us who are trying to carve out knowledge in this area, it is. I think one has to think of it almost like we are um, dissidents in, say, communist, um, you know, East Germany, where we're where the whole space is dominated really and more and more i see this it's like the the media is owned by these multinational these large multinational food and pharma companies and um and they 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 have come to really dominate the airwaves so the kinds of things that we talk about are almost happening behind closed doors i mean it's really uh i mean it's 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 it really is quite a battle to, and I'm not pessimistic. I just think that we have to understand that we are really trying to create knowledge and understanding and enlightenment about um, nutrition and health in a space that has has become very much dominated by corporate and financial interests, and now you know, and now ideologies or or I, or other corporate interests masking masquerading as ideologies. Um, so I think, um, you know, it's, it is, it's very hard to, for me, has been hard to be in this space and not want to also try to, ch to change it, right? It's, um, it's not just enough to bring out the information, although that's extremely important. I'm still very committed to that. But there is a desire to really want to create change, uh, because, because people are, you know, so many people are sick and suffering, and they're not getting good advice. And then they're being blamed for failing at the bad advice. I mean, that is even more, um, you know, shameful and, and sad to me. Yeah. And that yeah. a lot of people that are doing that shaming don't even know that they they don't even know that it's wrong because they haven't looked into, into the science behind it. They're just parroting what they've been told. Right. 
yeah, there's a kind of learned failure in the entire system. Like I actually don't blame doctors for giving their patients the wrong advice, um, even though it's it's there's there's plenty of problems with the system in which doctors operate, but their lack of knowledge about nutrition or the misinformation that they are parroting to their patients about nutrition is is not is not their fault. They're just they're they've been sort of spoon fed and they've downloaded the same misinformation that the public health authorities um, tell to us directly as well. Yeah, and you can only have to go back to episode, Jackie will remind me about Dr. Unwin, you know, his yeah. his own story. And, you know, not only just Dr. Unwin, but Dr. Tro, um, Dr. Brian, we've had on the podcast before, but where they've said they've only received minimal nutrition, you know, education as part of right. their, um, their doctor training, you know, and as you said, like Dr. Onman said, he was blaming the patients for not complying to his advice. And it's that sort of relationship. And when Dr. Onman's patient came in and had lost weight and he didn't recognize them, it's like yeah. they went against the doctor's advice. You know, <laughs> that's how dare you, the dissonance, you know, like or the dissident coming out, that rebel. And yeah, like, I mean, at least Dr. Unwin, if you, you know, he, you know, he had a sort of a change of mind, but how many stories have you heard of the people who go into their doctors with their fabulous results and the doctors can't see it, can't appreciate it, aren't curious. I might, you know, I, I must be one of the only patients in my doctor's practice who has lost weight as a middle-aged woman. And, and I'm, you know, I'm at a normal weight and, he says, you know, he's telling me how how all his patients struggle so much with weight. And I said, do you want to know how I eat? <laughs> are you are you interested? And he really wasn't. He just isn't. Yeah. And I think this that's is more the thing. common. It's sad. You're you're losing money for his practice. That's why, because you're a loss making entity. So he doesn't actually want to. He doesn't want to know your secret. That might be the money. Might be- subconsciously on his mind i don't know it's true i don't like going to the doctor and if you don't need to then you're in a then you are not a a profit line item in their in their books that's true and you were saying that when the book came out you, you were attacked um and at the phc conference you spoke about silencing the people who speak out against the narrative can you tell us a little bit more about yeah that? so i mean uh, well, when my book, before my book even came out, when I had a, a huge um, sort of it was front of the weekend opinion section of the Wall Street Journal, which is a fa- fairly major paper in the United States. And I had this, I had authored a piece um, and it was all on how saturated fats were not bad for health. But even just I think maybe the week before that came out, I started, there was, uh, there started to be attacks on me, particularly by this um, man named David Katz, Dr. David Katz. Uh, and he was writing uh, in an online newspaper at, called the Huffington Post. And he wrote a series of articles. He just, it was one after the other, after another, just constantly um, attacking me. Uh, just, you know, again, and he was, he called me, a um, what was it uh, a parasite of science or or a parasite on science? And he accused me of being one of those internet trolls who lives in her you know his mother's my mother's basement. And there was just nothing too base for him to say about me. And there were just endless ad hominem attacks. 
uh, and he was, um, and this was eventually, you know, I just, um, eventually I had a lawyer, I think, write a cease and desist letter to him, or maybe I wrote the, 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 the publisher of that online site. Anyway, finally, maybe after 10 columns, I, I sort of got him to, to pipe down a bit, but then he started and his code name for me was um, butter, meat and cheese. He continued to write columns, but he would say those crazy wing nuts who advocate for butter, meat and cheese. And that was, well, that's because the, the subtitle of my book is why better meat and cheese belong in a healthy diet. And um, so, and he actually went further when he was interviewed by a reporter for the guardian, he called me um, an animal, unlike any he'd ever seen. And he was, you know, that's what the Nazis do to and others do to demonize their enemies is to compare them to rodents and animals. And I mean, it was, he was really a serious um, attacker. And he, you know, he still runs a vegan I would say an attack group, really. I mean, they would say an advocacy group, but he and he uh, eventually there was a group of doctors who protested about his treatment of me. And at the time he was he had a center that was kind of very loosely tied to Yale University. And they, you know, first they said, well, it's Yale in name, but it has nothing to do with us. And then finally, uh, not soon after those doctors wrote a letter complaining about his treatment, he um, he retired from that job. Um, which I believe, you know, he probably didn't want to do, but it, it was getting to be an embarrassment and it was winding up in the Yale daily newspaper. So uh, that was, I mean, he went after me the most aggressively, but there were other people too. I mean, one of the things that they do um, is to accuse well, anybody they don't like, but including me, you know, of having conflict, financial conflicts of interest that are, that are non-existent. So there was a whisper campaign that was started and promoted by um, New York University professor, one of the most prominent people in nutrition, Marian Nessel, who was going around telling reporters, told a member of my board on the, of the Nutrition Coalition when I started that, told her, told, told, called various people and said that I was um, funded by the meat industry or that I was a meat lobbyist. That was another one to say that I'm a lobbyist. Uh, so all of that, Oh, and then when I first started the Nutrition Coalition, um, there was, um, and my first board, which included a number of mainstream nutrition scientists who were really concerned about the state of nutrition, but were still in the, in the field. They were not outliers. And they had people who had been on the Dietary Guideline Advisory Committee, so very senior mainstream nutrition scientists who were prepared to stand up. And then... Uh, the, the people who were after me, um, they called up every member of my board and told them to resign. And then they wrote a hit article on several members sort of disclosing every bit of funding that they had ever gotten from the food industry. And after that, the whole board resigned. So they just said, you know, we, it's, we just can't take the heat. It's not, a, you know, it's, it's too much for us. And, and I understand that completely because who wants to be, you know, have your name dragged through the newspapers. So, you know, I think um, I think what was partly interesting to me is that I should not have been at all surprised. I mean, I wrote about this in my book. I wrote about instances of bullying. I mean, the field has been suffering from this since its very inception. And one of the greatest promoters of that kind of behavior was our friend Ansel Keys, you know, the author of the Diet Heart Hypothesis, that when John Yudkin, the um, hit sort of 
dueling professor who was suggesting sugar rather than fat as a primary cause of obesity and other chronic conditions, Ansel Keys went after John Yudkin and called him names in the press. I mean, actually in an academic journal, called him names, called, told, accused him of being funded by some unnamed industry. So in a similar way, accusing them of fake financial conflicts of interest. And um, Jerry Stamler, his right-hand man, was doing the same thing by attacking uh, attacking anybody, I mean, really attacking, attacking their character, attacking them as people, um, and also attacking the science. So that's another tactic that is used, which is that when you publish something, when these scientists would publish something, they they would literally be attacked line by line by line by line. So when somebody, a Theodore Reiser, who is a famous professor at uh, Texas A&M, and he, he was so well respected in the field, he came out with a critique of Ansel Keys' diet heart hypothesis. And, and Ansel Keys responded with like a 28-page response going after every, you know, again, accusing Dr. Reiser's character, but also then going after every single statement in his article. Well, I mean, you probably know that when you object to a study, you can write a 200 word letter. Uh, But Ansel Keys at that point had such stature in the field that he was able to write this huge long rebuttal. But that kind of um, super hyper critical attack on one's work, is um is also what happened to me i mean the truth is nobody's work can really survive like it's not that you can't survive scrutiny but i mean people make tiny little mistakes or there are tiny little quibbles with word choices and but when i came out with my article i did a a cover story for the bmj magazine about the problems in the dietary guidelines and um and 180 scientists led by our friend david katz asked for the paper to be retracted and their complaints were just were just tiny tiny little quibbles about things that i had i mean there was there was maybe like one substantive thing that i had missed but you know she said effect rather than associated with or i mean really tiny things and nothing that merited retraction in the end but it's designed to make you paranoid about your work and it's designed to silence you Mm. and it's really designed, sorry, just one more thing. I know I've been talking for a little while, but it's really designed to send, to not just to silence you, but to send a message to anybody else who thinks like, oh, maybe I'll get into this field. <laughs> it sends a message like, no, you you will not get into this field because this is the way we will treat you. Yeah, Their playbook, you know, so really, you know, Ansel Keys is sort of perhaps his, his behavior set this up that this was acceptable you know, that this was an accepted practice. So we will silence, obviously, the alternate, you know, paradigms. But really, isn't that what science is? That's science's job. That's the role of having a hypothesis is right. to, you know, you put up the null hypothesis, you you test it to be able to, to accept or reject it. You know, where is the strength of the evidence? But the playbook now has gotten perhaps more um, sophisticated, and we've seen that in other um, other areas such as smoking. And um, here in Australia, we have a very um, prominent health, public health. You know, Simon Chap- Chapman, you know, unpacked all of those um, playbook and 
do you see that there's a role for, you know, certainly your role, Nutrition um, Coalition, in really challenging that, you know, really driving and, you know, highlighting, challenging that, that status quo? Yes, and I just want to agree with you that it is the role of science to have respectful disagreement. There's nothing more fun than disagreeing with somebody and and debating, uh, you know, what you think the merits of the science are. And and anybody who wants to uh, be taken seriously in the field has to consider that probably much of what they have said or or know is is likely to be wrong. I mean, it's it's. Um, you have to be willing to to challenge your own beliefs. I've certainly changed my mind on a number of things. I think that um, you know the playbook that we're seeing is a PR playbook, right? It's a it's a public relations um, or a kind of a propaganda playbook, which is to insult, minimize, demonize, vilify the messenger, right? That's part of their playbook um, and and to undermine them as much as possible and and actually to not engage in respectful debate at all. Um, so what can we do about that? Uh, I mean, we, uh, I, I think it's, it's the best strategy that I have been able to come up with is to cultivate the scientists who are real scientists and who want to contribute to their field in a meaningful way. I mean, I've written a number of papers now with some of the top nutrition scientists in um, in the world, really, or mainly mostly from America, but also Canada and Denmark. And we have written a number of papers. And what I have striven to do is to bring them together and to give them the courage that they might not have had individually to publish. You know, you just you need to publish collectively in groups with other authors and and to to kind of find courage and strength in numbers and also to to bring some sort of you know some senior voices to this um to this field i mean i think that you know nutrition science really has suffered in that until you know until Gary Taubes came along and my book came along and some others, you know, really started to kind of uncover this long buried, long ignored science. I don't think nutrition scientists had any idea that this existed. So for them, it has been a process of reading this literature and um, going back. And I mean, I'm amazed now I can talk to senior scientists who have gone back to read critiques like the one I just spoke about, about like Theodore Reiser's critiques, or have read the work of George Mann, a very outspoken critic of who spoke, who um, objected to Ansel Keys's ideas. So it has been a process of learning for them. And so I feel like probably the most important work that, or some of the most important work that, or that, that I feel the proudest about is, is having kind of corralled some of those great scientists um, and minds and brought them together to do some work that is, that is challenging to their own field. Yeah. I think it must, I was going to say nowadays with the internet, we've probably made more inroads because people can access this information and, and find it more. Um, and whereas 50 years ago, that wasn't possible. So one person standing up on their own, it was very easily silenced, pushed down, You funding taken away and all those other things that they do to stop people speaking out. 
nowadays they're probably having they're still doing it all the time we can see it not only with with food but with lots of other areas as well but they're having a harder time to to actually silence people because the information is available and and there's many doctors we know so many doctors i mean in the in the 5 years i've been low carb um so many more doctors are coming out and saying this mm-hmm. I, I believe this and this this makes sense and this seems right and all those things that sort of back up what you've been saying um is there any part of the book that you think is not right now that you would change if you had to write it again oh i don't think anything major i mean there there are parts of the book that need to be updated um but there's nothing that i think is 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 really wrong i mean there there are certain things that i left out i didn't talk about the sydney diet heart study, I should have done that. Um, but I don't think there's anything that I really think is incorrect or inaccurate. Yeah, I re-listened to it recently. And I didn't find anything that sort of jarred or jolted with what I've come to learn recently. Well, that's good to know. Well, if anybody finds anything, I'm open to, I may have a chance to do a kind of a 10th anniversary edition. So please send me any any comments or corrections. Uh and people do people have sent me corrections and I have made them and updated the you know the manuscript in small ways over the years. Um so yeah, I'm I'm open to people's suggestions. <laughs> What's been your biggest surprise about the book? Um well that it's still being read is is a wonderful surprise to me. Uh and that it I mean it in it had such a a tremendous impact is also just something I'm really grateful for. I mean, I had columns written on it in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and The Economist. And I mean, it was really an extraordinary reception. Um, so I'm truly grateful for that. And I was and it was reviewed by the BMJ and the Lancet. I mean, it really got um, a lot of attention. I had never thought that it would receive and it really didn't have much of a publicity team behind it either. So I'm even more um, amazed by that. But I, I uh, yeah, I don't really know. I've never, nobody's ever asked me that question before. Maybe one of the things that is maybe a little bittersweet is that so much of it is kind of entered into just common knowledge that people don't even know that it came from my, <laughs> that it came from my book. Like the whole field really of seed oils, um, you know, I think I introduced that to the to this low carb world. And I don't think it I think that's just, you know, it's great. I mean, it's fantastic that people are so aware now of the problems of vegetable oils. Um, and, uh, and it's just been sort of detached from from my work. But I, you know, that's something you can hardly complain about, because what you really want is for your work to live on, regardless of, yeah. of how it does that. Yeah. And but still, seed oils are so ubiquitous. Ubiquitous, I can't say. Yeah, um, that there's a lot more awareness. I mean, there's just so much more awareness. When I when when I was writing about it, nobody, with the exception of one article in West in the Western Price um, Organization, if you've heard of that, there was nothing written about it. There was just nothing, and it was really so. That was a breakthrough, and. and and think about the, you know, how much more awareness we have now. The fact that we just call all of so many people just call them seed oils, and and that we know that they have these toxic oxidation effects, and that people are avoiding them. I mean, that just that whole idea didn't even exist. 
And now there's a company that's come out with a new kind of seed oil made from, or not seed oil, an, an oil made from algae. I don't know if you've heard about that, but um, yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think that is a, you're right. It's, it's an area where we haven't seen any real institutional change. We haven't seen any change in the guidelines, but, but there's so much knowledge out there in the, you know, in the community. Hmm. So you you've done a lot of work through the um, nutrition coalition. Yeah. You now step down as director of. Right. How frustrating has that been to try and get the guidelines changed? <laughs> you know, I think that it was um, it was kind of really wildly naive and idealistic to think that we could change the guidelines. But I'm not. I'm not sorry that we that we went out and and started this group and and made that effort because we have you know we have accomplished first of all you know the guidelines are like the Titanic like you're not going to you're not going to shift the course of a policy this massive policy and on which you know in the US like 800 billion dollars in feeding programs all depend on the guidelines. Think of all those food contracts. Think of all those little cereal boxes and packaged donuts that are going out to kids, and it's all based on the guidelines. So you can't shift the Titanic uh, in one cycle. Um, they come out every five years in the U.S. And we did accomplish an amazing amount. We got three reports now from the National Academies of Sciences, which is our highest scientific body in the land. Not perfect, but that's still you know, the most significant and really the first ever outside critiques of uh, official critiques of the dietary guidelines. Really saying, you know, they lack rigor, they lack transparency in many ways. They, um, It's not any, they are not using any internationally recognized standards to review the science. I mean, those are those are big statements. <clears throat> so, and I believe in this last go around of the guidelines that we stopped them from their intention and desire to drop the caps on saturated fat even lower than the current ten percent. Mm. I've been told by um, a number of people that they wanted to take that down to seven percent in line with the American Heart Association. But uh, but we really we worked hard to to stop that from happening or, you know, our goal was to try to get rid of the cap on saturated fats. But I think, you know, we raised a tremendous amount of awareness about the problems with the guidelines and we have there was a there's been a lot of news coverage and um, I, I yeah, so, you know, it's it's just a process. It's an it's a it's you have to take the long view that um you know, the science is rising and our advocacy is rising. And those two forces will conjoin, I believe, to help reverse some of the, the you know, the less evidence-based guidelines that we have. Yeah. And, and thank the future you. then. Yeah. Well, thank you for, well, I was going to say and what's, for that. We, we all, you know, Louise's country as well as mine, we all take from America. So whatever mm. you can do, <laughs> we appreciate yeah. that. Well, and Australia is starting their own guidelines process, or they have started already. And uh, so actually, we're publishing an article on that. Um, and just, you know, it's, they, there's not the level of financial conflicts of interest. I, I was part of a, a paper um, that came out where we analyzed all the conflicts of interest on our dietary guidelines committee from the last iteration. 
and 95% of them had at least one financial conflict of interest and the vast majority had 20 conflicts or more. So this is with, you know, you name it, like all the, the big multinational food companies. And it does seem like the Australian committee does not have financial conflicts of interest, but all of them have ties to working with the same government agency that produces the guidelines, which is virtually, I mean, I think that's a almost a more intense kind of conflict of interest because you're not going to um, antagonize the, the, the agency that's funding your grant, that's employing you or has employed you or promises employment in the future in some way. I, uh, it was also our finding for the American Dietary Guideline Committee that many of them, even if they had the, the few people that had no conflicts of interest financially, had gotten millions and millions of dollars of grants from the from the same agency that that publishes the guidelines. Mm. So, and in fact, it, one it person is... spoke out. Sorry, I just want to tell you this one little anecdote. One person who spoke out and sort of blew the whistle on the process. She then got two emergency grants for millions more dollars from the same agency that produces the guidelines. So it was like, well. You need to just toe the line. Here's a couple million dollars to do that. Uh, it is hard. I mean, as a researcher, it is hard because, you know, there's a when you're working in groups and, um, you know, applying for these large national um, funding um, bodies to these bodies and you have to sort of put up your last five years, what's your best research? And, you know, and it's it, this, this is a part of your career. You're, you're assessed on on your track record you know your tenure is obviously becomes tenuous um you know that these those those are part of those conflicts of interest but i think it it speaks to raising as you've done through the advocacy raising the awareness of obviously the political systems are very different in the uk to australia to the us where lobbying you know is um, a full-time job for some people, you know, to, to be able to get in the back pocket of um, your your politicians. Not so much here in Australia, but there are obviously interests in um, supporting. They make donations which need to be declared to political groups, so that's on public record. So, um, yeah, the level of transparency is is a problem because that speaks to the interests of of the um, of the people that are involved in this decision making. So, um, yeah, and as you said, it doesn't happen overnight. We can't turn the Titanic, but it, but it will happen. And that's tell us a little bit more about the future for the Nutrition Coalition. Well, we're entering into the, the, our next process of the guidelines. We do it more. We do. <laughs> we're like on a, on a hamster mill. Um, we go, you know, every five years there's a new set of guidelines. I think that it's, it's supposed to be every five years. It's, it's sort of really on a four-year schedule to kind of coincide with each president presidential term. Um, so, um, yeah, it's, um, it's just starting up. They haven't named the committee yet. They, I'll, well, I'll tell you about the, the one thing that we have done that we don't know if it's successful yet, which is they came out with a list of questions that they plan to review and there's nothing about a low carbohydrate diet on it. So they're not going to look at any of the science in the low carbohydrate diet. Well, one of the things that I researched and I, I published a, new, uh, a blog or a newsletter, you might call it, about this is that back in 2015, 
they had reviewed the um, the low carb diet. I found this out by what we call the Freedom of Information Act, where we are able to get um, private, well, not private, but government records, government emails. So I found out from this email chain that they had looked at the low carb diet. They had done a formal review of that science. They found 43 studies on low carbohydrate diets. They said, um, and then they had a debate about what to do with this information where one member of the committee has said, you know, I don't think we should be, um, this is a substantial body of literature and it really seems, you know, it seems that it's extremely helpful for people. Or he said something along those lines that it's um, an effective approach. And the staff at the government agency says, well, we're going to put it in the methodology section of the report. I mean, not in the finding section where it belongs with all the other findings. They're going to put it in the methodology section, which is essentially stuffing it in terms of having any kind of ability to then inform recommendations. So this this one committee member, you know, kind of pipes up and says, you know, I don't think we should be burying it (laughs) in the methodology section where it doesn't belong. So, and that was the end of that email chain. And, um, and you know, and so it was that they didn't publish that, that systematic, what they call a systematic review. So that was 2015. In 2020, they did review low carbohydrate diets. In other words, they asked the question, they did formal reviews of the science and how many studies do you think they found of low carbohydrate diets? They used one. They use yeah one or zero. You know, it depends on the account that you read. But it's like they, like so, virtually none of the literature could they find. And whether that was because they were using funky inclusion criteria that was so restrictive that everything was ruled out, who knows? But they're experts. They're supposed to know. And you cannot you cannot pick up a medical journal or a nutrition journal. And you cannot be considered an educated person in this field without knowing that there's a lot published on low carbohydrate diets. So they are professing not to, you know, nobody raised any questions like how come they didn't find any studies? Well, there was not any conversation about that. And they seem to have forgotten that their own review five years earlier had found 43 studies. So this time around, they've decided to ask zero questions on the low carbohydrate diet. And we uh, we basically launched a letter writing campaign and had uh, for their public comment period after this list of scientific questions came out, the vast majority of the comments were from people who said, we want a low carbohydrate diet to be reviewed in the guideline. Like that's what we want. So we, you know, our commenters were absolutely the most, um, you know, that was the most common request. And we don't know if they are going to respond to that or not. I mean, we, you know, we are in, we send it to all the relevant officials and we're in touch, you know, we send it to people in our legislature and, but um, it's really hard to know if there will be any, any response to that. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, it really is a kind of, it's an astonishing denial of science. Like it is denying their own science and it's denying the science that's out there in the literature. And I think that they've gotten to the point where they they can't even pretend to review it because it would just, you know, it, they just can't reckon with that, uh, a diet that's so different from the one that they, you know, they have been endorsing for so long. Yeah, it's it goes against everything that they, it challenges everything that they believe in or or are financially invested in. Um, they don't they don't want to do it so the best thing is to just ignore it and hopefully it'll go away but we're not going away we're not going away. <laughs> exactly do you worry about your life 
do you worry for your life? Oh, gosh. Um, well, no, I don't. I mean, maybe I should, but I just, I couldn't live that way. So <laughs> I haven't had any, uh, I mean, people, you know, I, people do not, I haven't received any death threats. I haven't, you know, I, I do not. Yeah, I haven't. I think maybe I'm under the radar at the moment, but I'm not sure. Yeah. But just you're the, under the radar in, in North, Northwest Connecticut. So North, well, I'm, right. I'm under under a cloud of humidity, but anyway. When people stand up and and talk out against the norm and the narrative, they have a funny way of disappearing, committing suicide, having car accidents and things like that. So, Well, that's a scary thought. No, I know that that happens. And, you know, if that happens to me, just know that I'm, I'm not suicidal and um, <laughs> do something... <laughs> Nice in my memory. <laughs> yeah. We'll have a have a steak with some creamy sauce. How's that? Yeah. Is that, that would a deal? Be good. <laughs> so, no, yeah. And I mean it is it is like it is scary to think about. It's possible, you know, I, I launched this newsletter recently and um, you know, I it's even more really out there than than anything I've done recently. Like it really is. There's so many issues that have been unspoken for so long and you know they're there for and so i'm just putting it out there because i just i can't really bear the fact that none of this information is is circulating and so one of them is the fact that that one of the really probably the most powerful leader today in america in nutrition is the tufts uh, dean of the Friedman School of Nutrition and Public Policy. His name is um, Dari or Darush Mozafarian. He's led this whole effort to have something called a White House Conference on Nutrition. Nobody really knows what that's, you know, that's supposed to happen next month. Nobody really knows what the content of that is. But he has a laundry list of, of just enormous financial conflicts of interest. And he was on the Unilever Global Scientific Advisory Board. Then he's on, you know, he he runs a center on vegetable oils for Unilever. He gets money from Bungie, another huge uh, manufacturer of vegetable oils. Anyway, he's the person who came out with this so-called food compass, which was a food rating system. Maybe you saw it was all over social media for a while because I did this story showing, really reporting on a critique of that food compass because he he ended up like rating, uh, you know, Frosted Flakes and Lucky Charms and Reese's Peanut Butter Cups and ice cream with, um, you know, chocolate sauce, all of that ranked far higher than like a boiled egg. Mm. And, you know, beef was at the very bottom in those so-called, you know, the red zone, don't eat. And things like, you know, he had like 70 different brand name cereals that were all in the green zone and, you know, eat more of by naming them by brand. I mean, who does that except for somebody who is really a captured by the food industry? So I wrote about that because nobody's writing about it and it needs to be known. And uh, so maybe hastening my demise, <laughs> but, but we're shouting about it so that we know what they're going to do. You know, they can't right. do it now because we've, we've highlighted it. <laughs> right. With a <laughs> wing and a prayer. Right. So tell us about the newsletter. Well, it's, it's called unsettled science and um, I can, 
I can give you the link. It's on a platform called Substack. And, um, and so it's just a chance for me to get it's back into investigative journalism, trying to cover some of the stories that have not been covered. I mean, I don't see anywhere in the nutrition journalism world, a desire to take a, you know, a critical approach to what are, you know, basically the, any kind of public health expert or any kind of nutrition expert. I mean, I, what I see is, is just a sort of parroting of what the, what the government is saying, what the Gates Foundation is saying. What, so, and, and there's, and I don't see any nutrition journalist who is doing what journalists in every other area of inquiry do, which is to follow the money, like to look for financial conflicts of interest. There's just, it's, it's, you know, it's partially because these journalists, they come out of lifestyle reporting or they've written cookbooks or they they just don't have the chops of of journalists who are trained to be really highly skeptical. And I'm not saying I'm an expert investigative journalist by any means, but the kinds of things that I have found are just hiding in plain sight and other journalists are just not even looking for them. I'll just give you an example of the newsletter I just published, which was on I think you had quite a lot of coverage of this in Australia and maybe also in the UK, but on the latest headline about red meat causing heart disease, right? That came out of a study, a, a journal, um, and it got dozens and dozens and dozens of headlines. And almost every single story starts with the same line about, you know, just one hamburger a week will increase your risk of heart disease. Well, it's the easiest and it's all, it, it explains this by the mechanism of, TMAO, have you heard about? It? We're seen about this. Anyway, it's a, it's apparently you know it's a it's a metabolite that is produced in the um, the gut, and it's supposed to be caused by red meat. And the higher your TMAO is, the more likely you are to die of heart disease, according to this whole body of work that mainly comes out of the Cleveland Clinic. Since 2011, this one researcher, Stanley Hazen, has been doing this work which this latest paper he teamed up with our friend Darush Mozafarian from Tufts for who's also very anti-meat right because that meat is all meat is in the red zone for him so um well you know what's the the easiest thing to find a simple google search and the press releases from the Cleveland Clinic tell us that from 2015 on Procter and Gamble has been in the partnership with the Cleveland Clinic's commercialization arm to make TMO related products. In other words, they're making money off of any product that measures TMAO that so TMAO has to be bad for them. Mm. Because if 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 doctors start measuring for it, if people start thinking this is an important metabolite we didn't know as an indicator of heart disease, that's their their tests, their drugs, whatever it is that you know, they're probably they're developing drugs to target TMAO. So, you know, and I looked, I, I, you know, I did a, a somewhat um, cursory search. I just couldn't find a single newspaper story that had found that really important fact about this research. Yeah. So that's the kind of story that I want to get out there because the TMAO story, it just keeps, you know, it's just, it flares up, it comes up in the newspapers and, it, and somebody has to have, you know, you needed to have the information laid out to, to send to, again, your Uncle Andrew or whoever it is, or to send to somebody in the press to say, like, this is the story behind this. Yeah. Yeah. That's but, not but just that's a part of the story. Yeah. 
But that's part of the sound bites, right? So you can imagine the little sort of press releases and then obviously, as you said, the the investigative journalists, the, the questioning, thinking, sceptical journalists and then goes, well, no, hang on, how, what, where and why? Is this the case? You know, what are, what's behind the story? But as you said, other journalists in the space, obviously, you know, if it bleeds, it leads type stuff, you know, let's make that the headline. It, here's the, the prepackaged stuff. But it takes time and intensity. It's the the research skills. It's the questioning skills, you know, behind. What's the story behind the story? I think that that's really yeah. where we well, need to acknowledge. I mean, that. Yeah. And, you know, let's acknowledge the science is hard and and it's um and and it's not always easy for people to understand, you know, relative risk and what is how what's the relationship to absolute risk. And but I think it's really the job of nutrition of any science journalist to know some of those that basic kind of information. And but it's the I should skill. say another Yeah, well it is, but you know, you don't have to read that much. Like I mean, I think pretty much probably everybody in your community knows that an epidemiological or cohort study, prospective cohort study, observational study, they go by different names, but it's all these kinds of these studies that can show association, but not causation. Right. Yeah. Yeah, That's not a terribly hard concept to get. But I think from COVID, we've been, you know, hashtag sort of, you know, armchair epidemiologists. We we should know about absolute and, you know, relative risk. And this is the sorts of things that um, I'm getting back to the role of the journalist um, in translating the science and making science accessible. So I think, you know, the distillation of those messages to make it accessible, to educate the community in such a way as you did in your book was to, to, to give us the story behind it, to make, to translate, to make it accessible. So I think that's the, that's the skill behind it. I agree. And, but I also agree for you, the kind of the, the, just the, you said if it bleeds, it leads, but I think in the case of nutrition science, what, or nutrition journalism, there's um, the the compelling imperative is to just publish as much as possible, just get stuff out there to create content. I mean, that is now that we have a round the clock news cycle rather than say a daily paper or a weekly magazine, there's just this tremendous thirst for content, endless content of any quality. So the quality has really declined. And what provides that content is these, um, these epidemiological studies, because you can, they're so easy to publish. You have this giant database, you just run, you know, you can run correlations. It's like a mimeograph machine. (laughs) You just run a correlation of any, you know, anything you find in in your, you, if you have, you know, you you probably have thousands of different correlations you could look at. Each one is a paper Mm. where it's a clinical trial clinical trial, you have to, you know, recruit the people, enroll the people, put them on the diet. That takes six months or a year or however long that is. You also, after that, all that effort, you might get one paper or two papers maybe. So, I mean, just think about that, you know, whereas you're an epidemiologist, you've, you've published, you know, 20 papers in that time. And that's also what feeds the news beast, right? The new, the hunger for news, which is, you know, who is, what are the, what are the papers that are coming out? They're epidemiology papers. And they're not really worth the paper they're written on. Not really. In nutrition science, uh, I have, I think I have yet to see a nutritional epidemiological study where the, the relative risk is greater than two. Um, maybe you know, but the most important thing when you're looking at these kind of associational studies, 
there's a number of criteria that you look at to see whether that association might plausibly be considered a cause and effect, right? And the famous one that we all know about is smoking, heavy smoking and lung cancer, where the magnitude of the effect was like 15 to 30 fold greater incidence of lung cancer for heavy smokers versus never smokers. And so it's that magnitude of effect that is the most important criteria. And in in epidemiology, it uh, in nutrition, which is eat, which is hindered by the fact that it relies on these self-reporting food frequency questionnaires. The data is very weak because people lie about what they eat or they don't remember what they eat. But in nutrition, the magnitude of effect that number compared to fifteen and thirty in nutrition, it's 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 I've never seen a paper greater than two. Mm, yeah, which is insignificant. And yeah, there's you're not really supposed to consider those if those findings below two or three, it's been argued um, as, as high as three, because, you know, because of what, of all the other factors that could be causing that association that you just can't, you know, you can't adjust for, you don't know about, or, yeah. so that's a whole topic of conversation that I'm sure yeah. you've had with other guests, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I've never seen, I don't think I've ever seen a nutritional epidemiology study that's shown a relative risk greater than two. So how can people get in contact with you or find out more about you? Well, I'd love to put out this um, Unsettled Science link. You can find it under my Twitter feed. And I'm most active on Twitter, which is um, at Big Fat Surprise. And you can find my newsletter under there if you're on Twitter. I'm also on Facebook, but not as actively at Nina Teichels. And um yeah, I think those are the best places right now to find me. The Nutrition Coalition, if you're interested in our work, although we're updating our website, but it's nutritioncoalition.us. Um, that's where uh, our our work is there. We have some news blogs of our, our recent activities. And you can sign up for our newsletter, and that's sort of the way you become a member. And uh, yeah, so that's sort of the main places where I reside. I do not have a team of social media people keeping me on all platforms at all times of day and night, unfortunately. Yeah. Thank you. And we like to leave, um, leave the episode with your three top tips. Yeah. You mentioned that at the beginning and I, it's kind of been on the back of my mind, like, what am I going to tell people? Because as I said, you know, I didn't really read a, I didn't really write a diet book and I, I am not, I do not consider myself an expert in, in the practice of low carb or ketogenic diets, but so I want to, so I have a few ideas of things to share. One is that if, and one has to do with being a consumer of nutrition news, because I can offer this as from the perspective of a journalist or a researcher. If the study says this is linked to that, or may be, a, may be uh, connected to, you know, if red meat is linked to this or connected to that, or may have an association, that is a study that is a headline to just turn the page and move on, scroll on, because that is one of these weak st- studies that really is not, as, as Jackie said, does not have worth the paper that it's printed on. Um, so, and I, and I, it's, it can be hard because so many, there's so many headlines from that, but I think that's, um, that's, will save your, um, your mental health. <laughs> and then, um, you know, I guess, Another tip that I have recently come across that I I think is an interesting one that I just am sharing with you, which is that there's been a lot of discussion about having 
higher protein in a low carb diet combined with high intensity interval training. And I'm just on a very interesting email chain with a lot of doctors who are saying that that works better for their patients. Not everybody, not coming off a, you know, standard diet uh, in the beginning, but that maybe if you hit a weight stall, it's controversial, but I'm still just putting it out there because I think it's kind of interesting and cutting edge information. And, um, and I, I, I take seriously the experiences of clinicians and, you know, working directly with patients. And then I will give another bit of advice that comes from also from conversations with clinicians, which is that wearing a continuous glucose monitor, if you can get your hands on one, uh, is one of the most illuminating ways to understand how your body responds to um, carbohydrates and how different people are in their responses and how that immediate source of information to really like a, you know, kind of a telescope into your body, how powerful that people find that. So those are just, the last two are just things I've been thinking about in the last few weeks. So I'm just sharing that. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you for the, the protein and the high intensity. You can see my forehead is all scrunchy because <laughs> I, I don't like high intensity. I like lifting things repeatedly, which it does get my heart rate up, um, you know, with my well, okay, feedback so then, stuff is really good. Let me, um, well, let me, let, let me amend that comment then, which is that I think that weightlifting and high intensity interval training are probably probably have a somewhat similar effect. Right. It's just something that is very intensive that really stresses your muscles to exhaustion. And um and that that is effective in changing actually your your sort of whole metabolic um system unlike say slow uh low intensity exercise like walking or you know, what I used to do, which I called not jogging, but plodding. <laughs> Can't you see my gains? These are my gains. Looking at Louise's muscle now. Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> so I lift weights. I don't, um, you know, I don't do actually HIT. <laughs> yeah, because that's um, particularly, uh, I think it needs to, that advice is tailored to obviously where you are in your journey, as you said. So if you're just coming off the back of a sad diet and you're coming to a low carbohydrate diet and, um, you know, particularly I'm very conscious of being a more mature lady and I need to maintain my lean body mass to, to maintain my, my bone density. So I don't end up like my mother. So, um, yeah. yeah. So I think that, that that's, um that's reassuring. Thank you. Thank you. I'll, I'll eat my lean chicken breast and lift heavy things. So as prescribed by, by <laughs> Nina. Don't forget the fat. No. And again, this is just, you know, these are things to play with on the margin, but it's not medical advice. And, you know, I, I definitely, I'm still, I, I basically think just don't add heaping more amounts of fat on, you know, on whatever you're eating. But so I, everybody, the, everybody is different. And so everybody's on their right. own. So the chicken right. breast with the skin. So that's yeah. good. <laughs> that's what I would do. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, Nina. It's been, um, we've obviously taken up a, a lot of your time today and we know that you're very busy. You've got um, got commitments and, you know, continue the advocacy work and we're, we're right behind you, subscribing to the newsletters and um, certainly following you on Twitter um, as we do. And, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll look for the next, um, I suppose, the next chapter for the Nutrition Coalition with great interest and well, turning the Titanic. Yeah. 
<laughs> Wish us all luck. But um, well, thank you for having me on. It's really a pleasure to talk to you both. And as I told you earlier, I follow your weekly newsletter, which I really enjoy. So I really appreciate your efforts. And um, yeah, it's just a pleasure to talk to you both. Thank you. Thank you, Nina. All right. Well, Jackie, what a great in you know, I feel really privileged in having, you know, spent some time with Nina. I know that she's an extremely busy, um, busy person. And, um, yeah, it was really quite gracious of her to to give us her time today. Yeah, it's fabulous. And, and we had some great conversations there as well. Yeah, I, I mean, you, you really sort of picked up on on the fact as as she was researching and finding out this information, it must have been as as we were sort of talking to her is just like can this really be real is this real is this is this the you know just the sitting on this you know obviously deconstructing you know this knowledge that we just assume that fat is bad for us and then unpacking obviously the interests you know Ansel Keys and the um the trial information from his seven countries studies and you know, these sorts of things as it evolved and unraveled, it must have been, yeah, quite a quite an emotional journey for her. Yeah, and, and you you can't even begin to imagine all the stuff that she started to uncover because we quite often take what we're given as truth. And I don't know if you saw the other week there was a there was a recent article about um the, the, it was actually the oh Jackie, come on, I can't say his name. Dariesh Mazafarian. Yes. So this is what who Nina spoke about, and just recently in the paper there was his new diet, which is the absolute what you must know to be healthy, and and this was a new article. It was in one of the English papers. And he was hailed as this great person. And yet when you look at the food, real food doesn't feature very much in the top 100. It's very low down. And you just say, here we go again. They're still at it. They're still trying to pull the wool over our eyes that this is a good way to eat by eating some Kellogg cereal for breakfast. I just... It just astounds me. And she must have at that time. So we have got used to the fact that oh, researchers and their papers are showing parts of what their research has shown, but not all of it. And we can, we're a bit more cynical about it and a bit more, yeah, okay, I don't believe that. But there's so many people out there that do believe it. But I think this is the thing which... We've spoken before about being a critical consumer, you know, of, of information. And I think, you know, the fact that we're so used to to seeing in our just our general press about the misinformation that's given. And I think that that's sort of, as you said, sceptical or, you know, cynical. But, you know, I'd say it's, it's more a critical consumer, you know, and we think about the whys and the hows. So why are we reading this? How has this information come to us? You know, who is, obviously, that's a really important part. 
is who is behind the research or certainly the the publication. And I think, you know, these are the critical questions. It's not about what we what we read, it's more the critical questions are the what, the how and the who, you know, the the, the agenda behind this latest study about red meat is bad for us and, you know, fat is bad for us. It's just like you, you, you do get a sense of here we go again, you know, mm. what is it this week? Come on, guys, you know, here we are again. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's part of what Nina's, you know, you know contribution really to, to the community is the fact that we have such an awareness of these corporate interests and you know the information the the misinformation and the perpetuation and the vested sort of you know the vested interests of their producers and of you know food producers and you know the information that we we consume is really is really you know a great gift you know and it's it'll be the gift that keeps on giving for um you know moving forward and the fact that it's also spawned a lot of um, other people like Belinda Fetke, who's really, you know, un, again unraveled a whole a whole new agenda around, um, you know, plant based the plant based agendas as well. So I think that that's that's a really again another gift that from Nina. Yeah, but the plant based agenda has been going on for a long time. And it started with this demonization of saturated fat and red meat. And, you know, that this has been going on for decades. So But I don't but I don't think it's been as much as in our consciousness as to um certainly the messaging. Yes, certainly the messaging is there, but but the critical consumption of the messaging, you know, asking the questions, well, who, who's, who is behind that and how has it come to be that way? And, you know, the, the fact that that's um, particularly around significant church, you know, the ideologies behind the church in driving forward the messaging, then I think that that's perhaps new, new understanding. I think it's just because people are now ripe for that information and, you know, because it's been drummed into us over decades, they're now in a position, one, the food companies are now in a position to manufacture the plant-based, and I'm using inverted commas with my fingers, to say we're it, it's food. It's not really food. It's not food as we know it. Um, but this has been going on and I think people are now ready to hear the message. Lots of them, not me. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I certainly was. a lot a lot more a lot more people. I think there's a certainly as a movement, the momentum of the movement and a little bit more mainstream acceptance of the ideologies and the messaging which is wrapped up with you know, with climate change. So I think it's very topical. And certainly it's it's sort of gathering pace around animal welfare plus the climate plus this plus that. It's obviously, um, yeah, really drawing in a whole bunch of allied peripheral groups into, into a mainstream. Yeah, don't get me started on the climate change agenda. 
you don't want to hear about that. <laughs> Jackie, 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 we what we love about you is your passion. You know, there's and there's not only just your passion, but you know, the fact that you have a view. I think that that's <laughs> that at least we know where we stand. So Jackie's passionate views are uh, you know, yeah. I think that that's what we love about you, that you have a view and you're very passionate about it. And I'm very unconventional and woke well, and and not a black sheep. Um, I am a black are... sheep. I'm not, a, I'm not as um, Zoe Harkham said, a sheep. I'm not going to end up on your plate for you to eat. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, if you were a little loin chop now, come on. I would love that. So, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I've got lots of fat to... <laughs> it. yes so i you know i don't think this is a um a topic it's gonna it's gonna go away i don't think there's any quick solutions to to changing anything and you know whilst the nutrition coalition is a great idea and ideology they're up against so much that they're not going to be able to they're not going to create huge change. So some of it they can maybe keep poking the bear, but I don't think there's any great change coming because, as we said, there's too many corporate interests, vested interests, research money, um, people's livelihoods that they've staked their reputation on this. Their whole career has been based on this information and they're not about to backtrack. It certainly is um, the change, and uh, you know, this is where I was having these conversations with with Nina about policy and how you know, and being able to have the policy analysis to have a look at you know who's absolutely, as you said, the corporate interests, who are the professionals that are involved, and you know where is the consumer voice. So, the Nutrition Coalition and other groups like the PHC is really you know around the consumer. So. And that's really where the policy analysis conversation I was having with Nina about was obviously looking at who the professionals were and where the corporate interests lay and and the consumer. Mm. So the role is really at that level, you know, at that advocacy level. And, you know, again, like other advocates that we've had had on the podcast, it's it does feel we're shifting, you know, we're, we're trying to turn slowly glacially change slow of the titanic you know in 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 trying to do that but you know all power to to the individuals to the coalitions to the the collaborations um so i think you know if it wasn't for them then you know we as a momentum as a as a driver for change you know really need a place to be able to do that so i do we thank Nina for, you know, putting herself out there. And as we spoke to Asim Mahotra, you know, these people are really putting themselves to be, um, you know, a focal point for, for obviously, for groups to, to target. So, and I know that you have concerns about their safety and their welfare. So it was reassuring that Nina, um, yeah, Nina feels feels okay. Yeah. <laughs> We wish Nina all the very best for um, the new direction that the Nutrition Coalition um, is taking. So um, keep fighting the good fight. 
And um, if I know, we'll put it, put the links to her her newsletter so we can support her in any way. Um, so subscribe to the newsletter. That would be really great. I'm sure that your support of um, of the Nutrition Coalition and her work will will continue with um, obviously some more subscribers. Yeah, and I think um, Nina commented or made a an article on that research that um, was in the Daily Mail. I mean, she spoke about it in the in the episode, but also she wrote about it on on her mm. substack about about it but it just came out in the daily mail not that long ago so sure so jackie where can we get the show notes for this episode the show notes can be found at fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash 107 and again happy anniversary jackie happy anniversary to you too <laughs> It would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash fabulously keto and you can choose the monthly amount you wish. Can you recommend a guest we can interview? If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation. Would you like to join our Facebook group? Search for Fabulously Keto on Facebook. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto and you can follow us there. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto 1. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle Fabulously Keto 1 and the hashtag TFKP. All the links are on the website and in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the subscribe button. Reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners. Please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. We appreciate you taking the time and read them all. Disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice. Whether our guests are doctors, healthcare professionals or not, they're only sharing their own opinions and stories, and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. It's always best to seek professional medical advice should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments. Also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health or you wish to make lifestyle changes, especially if you're taking medication. <laughs>